Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10. It's our commitment at Southview to preach the whole counsel of God's Word. And that means we preach on things that are uncomfortable, preach on things that we just as soon say, "Mm, I'm not going to touch that. And that's where we come today when our passage of Scripture today includes a suicide. Judas taking his own life. Let me say that more clearly. Judas taking his own life in his remorse or guilt for his betrayal of Jesus. So we'll deal with that along the way today. The title of our sermon is When Forgiveness Seems Unattainable. I think all of us, because we are people of conscience, God gave us that conscience and His Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins as well as our conscience, know what guilt is and know what shame is and know what that sort of remorse and regret is. Hopefully, you've come to the point in your life where you know what repentance is as well, that through Christ, you have learned what it means to turn from your sin and to follow Jesus, and there's new life in that. This passage of Scripture today challenges our thinking on these topics. I'm going to ask you, if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, to stand as we read Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty silver coins to the chief priests and elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this money into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy a potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That's why it's called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. Let's pray. Father, like we always do when we come to opening your word, we pray that you'd speak to us by your spirit. We know that you are a loving God, gracious and compassionate. And we know that you are not slow in keeping your promises, not wanting anyone to perish. But we also know that there is brokenness and sinfulness in our world. And sometimes we as humans, creatures of free will and selfishness, are confused and deceived and make terrible choices. Father, we pray that you speak to us now your peace and your truth in response to what we see in this message today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, friends. You can be seated. Our scripture memory verse for the month is from our sermon three weeks from now, the last Sunday of the month on the 30th. And let's read that together. Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Luke twenty three thirty four. You'll recognize that perchance if you've read that story or seen it portrayed. But 
for us, it reminds us that sometimes as human beings, we do not know what we were doing. We should know better. We probably know better, but we still choose worse. We see that happening even today in our passage of Scripture. And you've got five different choices of words as your major points in the boldface print. And the first one on your outline is that remorse or repentance. Remorse or repentance as we get into our Scripture and we look at Judas in verses 3 in the first part of verse 4. It says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, he betrayed Jesus. Remember, he had agreed with the chief priest to take 30 pieces of silver and show them where Jesus was to hand him over to death. Saw that Jesus was condemned. It was as if either he hadn't thought things through all the way, or now that things were happening, he was having second thoughts. Then he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver corns to the chief priests and the elders. Now, it's interesting that the New Testament uses this word remorse. Remorse is a different word than repentance, and that's why I have this choice for us here. Remorse or repentance. Because you would agree with me as somebody who's thought about how you feel when you realize you've done something wrong, when you've sinned against someone else or sinned against God, that remorse may come first, but remorse without repentance is incomplete. Remorse may lead us to repentance. Remorse is the beginnings of guilt, may be powered by shame, but it is not until we say, yes, I have sinned and I'm turning away from my sin and repent and turn from our sin that we do fully what God has called us to do to come back to a right relationship with him and or others. Judas was seized with remorse. And so in his remorse, he returned the 30 silver coins. When you consider opinions of Judas, there's kind of some opposite sides, and then there's some in the middle. On the one end, a Bible teacher like John MacArthur, who I love and trust, took a very strong opinion. He said that no one in history could be more evil than Judas. That's a strong opinion, wouldn't you agree? No one in history could be more evil than Judas. Judas did not even take the first steps of faith, MacArthur uh, puts forth. He said he defies comprehension that Judas persistently resisted God's grace and God's son. His hypocrisy was so complete that when Jesus predicted a betrayer, the other disciples didn't even suspect Judas. We may portray it a little bit differently when we do in our Lord's Supper scene uh, here in this day of resurrection at Southview. But if you look at Scripture, they don't all say, I bet you it's Judas. He's the guy. That's not in Scripture. They're as surprised as anyone when it's Judas. He was a false disciple of Jesus and he rejected Jesus and Satan entered him, Luke 22, 3 says. And that's MacArthur's strong opinion. John R.W. Stott, another Bible teacher who I love and trust, has a more moderated opinion. Stott says this. He says that Judas may have been a devoted follower of Jesus who turned to hate because his zealot dreams of revolution against the Roman Empire that he thought Jesus was raising were dashed and not realized. And that Judas may have been forcing, trying to force Jesus' hand by betraying him that then the revolution would begin, Right? So Stott allows room for Judas to be a follower of Jesus, but a conflicted follower of Jesus, even though Scripture says Satan still entered him. 
Either way, what we see is the darkest colors of peril of trying to do God's work in our own way, Stott says. That Judas, whether it was trying to foment a revolution or trying to assuage his guilt by suicide, was doing things his way. And when we do things our way, human way, sinful way, fallen way, short-sighted way, it falls far short of what God intends for us to do. He returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. Just as pain is an intrinsic warning of danger to the physical body, so too guilt is an intrinsic and automatic warning of spiritual danger. And in his guilt, he returned the 30 silver coins. But did you notice the one thing that's missing here? He didn't turn to Jesus for forgiveness. The Jesus who he had seen heal people, the Jesus who he had seen speak life to people, the Jesus who he had seen forgive person after person after person, Judas, in his remorse, did not turn to repentance and did not turn to Jesus, God in flesh, to seek forgiveness. He tried to handle it himself. He tried to give back the money to assuage his own guilt. Yet proof of his ungodly, selfish sorrow was that he made no effort to defend Jesus either. He didn't say, as Scripture records, either here or elsewise, that he had a conversation with the chief priest to say, I shouldn't have done this, or Jesus is an innocent man. He makes a statement like that, right? I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. But he goes no further than that. He shows some humility, some remorse, but not repentance that turns from sin. One must wonder, was Judas truly concerned about his own forgiveness? Or was he just trying to deal with his feelings of guilt or run away from a problem? You've got two questions there for us to consider. And the first one is this. From Jesus' perspective, how much does betrayal hurt? If you've lived long enough, you've been betrayed. I think even little children feel betrayed by their friends. That when they're going to do a certain thing and then something goes wrong, there's this great sense of uproar and defense and cry. And certainly as adults, you've been betrayed. As we get more independence in our life and grow in our age and experience, there's more opportunity for betrayal. You Think about something like a broken marriage. A broken friendship, broken promises. Betrayal, no matter how big, no matter your age, hurts. And can you imagine Jesus' feelings? The second question I ask here is, what is a life worth? 30 pieces of silver, five weeks wages at that time. That's what Jesus' life was worth to Judas Before we get too uppity and holier than thou, uh, Judas, we need to think about our world today. That in Iraq, a Yazidi person can be bought and sold for much less than that. In Thailand, a sex slave who's being trafficked can be bought and sold for much less than that. That's today. But we think about what does it cost for me to betray Jesus What does it cost for me to betray anyone? In my opinion, in my actions, it's probably a whole lot less than five weeks wages. 
So lest we shake our finger at Judas and get self-righteous towards him, we need to consider our own betrayals and our own transactions of life and death. We move from this first point about Judas to a second point about the Jewish leaders. And that has the pair of insensitivity or responsibility. Insensitivity or responsibility, you see the second part of verse 4. Judas has said, I want to return the coins. I've sinned. Jesus is innocent. And they say, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. They are at both time insensitive to Jesus or insensitive to Judas. Uh, their, Their reply is callous. They don't care. But their own words condemn them because it should have meant something to them. That Judas betrayed innocent blood, but they condemned innocent blood. And Jesus wouldn't be dying if it wasn't for them. And so when they say it's your responsibility, they're lying to themselves and lying to all the rest of us through human history that see this recorded. Isn't it something how guilty, foolish, sinful people always seek to shift blame? That's what's happening, right? It's not our fault. You're the one that did it. Oh, no. Yeah. Think about you. When you're caught, when you do something wrong, I don't know about you. I like to try to make excuses. I like to try to blame somebody else. It's always someone else's fault, right? We know it. We do it. They did it. Which leads to your first question there, and that's how do I usually avoid responsibility? I mean, what's your MO, right? Your modus operandi. What is your go-to when something is pinned on you and you don't like it and you don't feel comfortable with it? Is it blame of somebody else? Is it excuses? We generally have a go-to. All of us do. We're human. And that's what these guys do. It's not our fault. It's your fault, Judas. Which begs the next question. Can I be forgiven when I can't ask? What I'm getting at here is when we feel separated from God and we can't ask. Or the person that we have sinned against, we can't ask them. You have to try to imagine now that Judas is visiting the Sanhedrin in their chambers Jesus is elsewhere occupied. He's been betrayed and they've taken him to the Roman garrison where they're doing all sorts of terrible things to him unjustly and cruelly, right? So it's not that Judas can easily get to where Jesus is and say to Jesus face to face, will you forgive me? I've sinned against you. I've betrayed you. This is my fault. And what about you when you realize you've sinned against somebody, when you've betrayed them, when you've hurt them, can you still be forgiven even when you can't ask that person? I would say, based on what I know of God's word, if you ask God to forgive you, yes, he can forgive you. But there's something about a human relationship and the way God made us that he puts in our hearts the desire to seek to reconcile that relationship with others. The Bible is clear that we can be forgiven, right? 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness and all means all, no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've done it, you can be forgiven. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we're still sinners. 
Christ died for us, that you can be saved even in your sin. You don't have to get cleaned up in order to get saved. You come to Jesus as ugly, as guilty, as sinful as you are, and he saves you. And that's what cleans you. And the Bible says in John 1, 12, that all of us who received him, who believed in his name, have the right to be called children of God. We're adopted. So yes, we can be forgiven. Yes, we can be welcomed into the family of Jesus. But when it's that other person that we somehow or some way can't speak to, that makes it difficult. God gives us the gift of forgiveness. The table set before us today is symbolic of that. The wafers are symbolic of the body of Jesus broken for us. The juice is symbolic of the blood of Christ shed for us. And these things remind us of, in his love, what Jesus did to pay the penalty for our sin, to welcome us into an eternal relationship with Jesus, or with God in heaven. So yes, we can be forgiven. These elements remind us of that. As we move on in our sermon, we go to a third major point. And your third major point focuses on Judas, and that's this, lie or life. Lie or life. Judas, unfortunately, chose in his deception with Satan having entered his heart to believe a lie that suicide is an answer rather than choose life. That's why I phrase that this way. So, Look at verse 5. It says, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Now, you have to understand what he did there. He's visiting with the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, in their chambers. So he's got a little walk to go. Although it seems like they were, must have been in the temple already and he just chucked the money at them. No, that's not what happened here. What happened here is that Judas walks through the court of the Gentiles, through the court of women. I mean, this is not a close way. This is a long walk. Through the court of the Israelites. And he came to the court of the priests at the far end of the temple complex from where the Sanhedrin meets and stands at the edge of that and throws the 30 silver coins into the court of the priests where no person other than a priest could enter. He did it on purpose so that no one else could get the 30 coins and so that the priest would have to go and pick up the 30 coins. John MacArthur says, and this is a good quote, you might want to write this one down, sin never brings the satisfaction it promises. Sin never brings the satisfaction it promises. Sin never brings the satisfaction it promises. That Judas, for whatever reason, sinned against Jesus in betraying him. And he had something in his mind, whether to start the revolution or whatever else, but it never brings the satisfaction it promises. Instead of happiness, sin brings sorrow. Instead of pleasure, it produces pain. It poisons with a pang that cannot be received apart or relieved apart from God's grace. And in that poison pang, what did Judas do? He went and hung himself. So profound his despair that he saw no other way out. Remorse is destructive. He took his own life. Whereas repentance is creative and God brings new life and change, remorse is destructive and Judas took his own life. We've got to talk for a minute about suicide. The first thing, of course, we want to know is does Scripture condemns suicide. Yes, suicide is murder. It's self-murder. It is sin. 
But does it say anywhere in Scripture that if you commit suicide, you are condemned to hell? No, it does not. Although some churches teach that, it's not there. Even suicide can be forgiven. John MacArthur gives five reasons for Judas' suicide. He says the first is retaliation, or any suicide, excuse me, wanting to hurt somebody who's hurt you. The second reason for suicide is reunion, wanting to be with somebody who's already passed away. You've been married for so long and your spouse died and you're like, I'm done with this, I want to go too. The third is rebirth, as in Eastern religions or reincarnation or something like that. The fourth is a little bit more difficult, retroflex, that in place of someone who can't be found or brought to justice, some sort of twisted way to commit suicide. And the fifth is probably the most common, self-retribution, to try to handle guilt that seems to be unforgivable and unremediable. Yet because every human is made in the image of God, no one has the right to murder anyone. You don't even have the right to murder yourself. And it's not difficult to understand why Judas committed suicide, but it's tragic nonetheless. The problem is that death does not relieve guilt. Only Jesus can. And rather than turning to the Jesus he knew and walked with for three years, even though he couldn't be with Jesus uh, personally, he knew what Jesus had taught. He knew what Jesus said. He tried to take care of it himself. And death makes permanent and intensifies beyond comprehension the guilt that Judas was dealing with. You've got a question there, and that question is, does suicide send a person to hell? And the answer is emphatically, no. Suicide does not damn a person to hell. How one dies does not determine one's eternal destiny. Do you hear me clearly on that? It is your choice to trust Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord while you are alive that determines your eternal destiny. Believers in Jesus can get far enough away from the life-giving relationship of Jesus that I believe they can believe the lies of Satan and take their life, commit suicide, and that's how they'll die. But I also believe we'll see them in eternity. And on the other hand, of course, there are those that never knew Jesus as their Savior, whether they had the opportunity to trust Him or not. And when they take their life, they will spend eternity in torment in hell. Not because they committed suicide, but because they did not trust Jesus as their Savior while they were alive. You've got a second question there. That second question is, was Judas even saved? As I pointed out to you, my two scholars who we trust and love, both MacArthur on one end and Stott on the other, and us maybe somewhere in the middle depending on how you feel, and there are sometimes questions that we can't answer. And we cannot answer, I don't feel, emphatically, we can't answer anyhow, that Judas was lost and damned to hell because he hadn't trusted Jesus, as MacArthur says, or maybe something more moderate like Stott says. We can only guess. If suicide didn't condemn him to hell, was he already condemned because he wasn't a believer? We can imagine Seeking to understand why Judas would do what he did, he was either a sinner or a misguided saint. 
seeking to understand how Judas did what he did. He was either so deceived, so far from Jesus, that he thought this was the best way. That's not unlike some of us here. We're so near to the things of Christ, so near to the people of Christ. You're here every Sunday. You serve anytime the doors are open, yet you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus that saves you to eternity. Or though you have a personal relationship with Jesus, it's so old and so stale, you don't hear God when you pray, or you're just giving up praying. You don't understand or discern God when you read the Bible or you just don't even read the Bible anymore. Sure, you go through the motions and you come to church, but you don't have a personal life-giving relationship with Jesus as God intends. Maybe more of us are like Judas than we'd like to imagine. As we move to our fourth point on our outline, we've got to deal with this question of law or grace. And this takes us back to the Jewish leader's Look at verse 6, 7, and 8. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this money into the treasury since it's blood money. And that's in the Old Testament, and it's correct. So they decided to use the money to buy a potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. So they're using unclean money to buy an unclean place to bury unclean people, according to their way of thinking. That's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. These guys who knew all the laws and all the rules aren't concerned about Judas. They aren't concerned about how he feels, aren't concerned about the fact that they've perverted justice to get Jesus put to death. And they're choosing law over grace. You've got a question there to consider. And that's, do I tend to seek justice or defend injustice? Again, I have to ask, what's your bias? What's your MO, your modus operandi? Or are you somewhere in the balance? Or you look at that question and say, uh, hey, pastor, that's a false dichotomy. What if I, I can do both, right? I can seek justice while defending injustice at the same time. Many times we can. You're right. I just chose to phrase it this way to try to make us think, right? It seems like the Jewish leaders, no, it doesn't seem like, it is, that the Jewish leaders here are more interested in doing the just thing, following the laws about how to handle this money, than they were about the injustice of how they handled Jesus and how they responded to Judas, But then you have something else happening here. Something as a bit of an aside that you may not notice yet unless your Bible has footnotes or unless you recall other accounts of this from the other Gospels or in Acts chapter 1. That what happened as it's reported in Matthew that the chief priests gather the money and they buy a field and they call it a field of blood. That's reported differently elsewhere. It's reported differently elsewhere that it was... Uh, where are my notes on that? I've got them in here somewhere. Well, we'll get there in a minute. Let's get that next question. How do I balance these two accounts? 
that Luke says that Judas bought the field and fell into the field and his body burst open. That Matthew says the priest bought it. Acts says Judas bought it. Matthew says Judas hanged himself. Acts says he fell and burst. Matthew says it's named due to the purchase. And Acts says it's named due to Judas's blood. If you look at those two things that seem to be opposite, both who purchased the field, how Judas died, and, well, not those two things, the three things, excuse me, and the name of it due to the purchase or Judas's blood, they could seem to be at odds, but maybe not. Because if we're seeking to balance these two biblical accounts, actually three biblical accounts, because you have what Matthew reports, Luke reports, and Acts account uh, reports all uh, playing into this, it could be that Judas bought the field, and he hung himself in that field, and because no one wanted to touch him, His body swelled and burst into that field, and then it's named the field of blood. We need to remember that the Bible, although we want it to be precise, is not always as precise as we'd like. It's a historical account, but it is not a scientific account down to its details. And this shouldn't be anything that should cause us to question the truthfulness or the veracity of the Bible but to remind us that the writers of the Bible, inspired by God, even included things that didn't quite add up, rather than making sure it all seemed the same. So that we can say, you know, there is truth in this, rather than saying, oh, this is too perfect, too good, that there's uh, uh, no warts or bumps or errors here in behalf of the heroes of the story. But there are. So we have these two different or three different biblical accounts. And so that's why we handle Scripture like we do. That's why we study it. That's why we seek to understand it. And I just had to point it out to you. We need to move on to our fifth and final point. Your fifth and final point is confusion or sovereignty. Because interestingly enough, in this passage of Scripture, we have another controversy, if you will. We've got the fact that Judas committed suicide and how do we handle that and understand that. We've got the fact that How did Judas die and why is this field named this way or who purchased it? We just dealt somewhat quickly with that. And then we've got another one here, verse 9 and 10. Let's read it. Then what was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took 30 uh, silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. The problem is Jeremiah never said that Zechariah did. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 and 13 specifically. And what it appears is that Matthew, though under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has kind of combined some ideas, the potter's field from Jeremiah, with the 30 pieces of silver as the purchase place of this place where the man who betrayed Jesus would die or be buried and mix these two things together. So again, we have a little bit of a controversy that could cause us to be confused? Or do we still see God's sovereignty in this? Here's what I mean. Even though Matthew got the quote wrong and the attribution wrong, the fact that Zechariah and Jeremiah both have something to say about the betrayer 
and the amount of money that would be given to betray the Messiah points to a greater fact, and that's this. Every detail of Jesus' life is reported by prophecy hundreds, if not thousands of years ahead of time with exact precision. How do you, in the time of Zechariah or Jeremiah, 800, 600 years before Jesus, just include some random thought about 30 pieces of silver or purchasing the potter's field? You don't unless you're inspired by God. And the same God speaking to different persons throughout time is inspiring them to tell the same story so everything fits perfectly. So that's why I give you this point of confusion or sovereignty. Although uh, Matthew got the quotes a little confused, it still points to me and it should point to you for God's sovereignty over all history and all time that every detail is perfect. Your question there says, where do I see the precision of prophecy? I think I should have waited to tell you what I just told you till after this question. And hopefully you see it there that every fact of Jesus' life is told ahead of time. And your next question there is the big one to end on. What do I do when forgiveness seems too much? I put that question here by means of conclusion for two reasons. One, it's the overarching theme I want us to consider when we look at this passage of text even though there are other controversies we had to deal with. But two, look back to the point it follows. Confusion or sovereignty. When I feel so much shame, so much guilt, and so bad for something I've done, do I deal with it in my confused own mind of how to handle it? Or do I turn to the sovereign God who loves me and ask him to take away my guilt and take away my sin and forgive me? That he removes sin as far as the east is from the west, that it is no more. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, when we consider your great love for us, that you are the God who is rich in mercy. And you made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and sin because it's by grace that you have saved us. And by that grace, you raise us up with Christ to the heavenly realms so that we can show your incomparable riches and grace, and your kindness in Christ Jesus. Yes, God, it's by grace we've been saved through faith, and it's not from ourselves, not by works, so no one can boast. It is the gift of God. And so, God, because of your grace, we come to you today. We are humbled as we respond. Even in the face of a Suicide and questions and controversy. We come to you in grace, God. So, Father, would you lead us to humility and repentance now?
that we would prepare our hearts to receive this table. In Jesus' name, amen.